listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible or an iPad or an app or whatever, go ahead and turn in it to Matthew chapter 22 this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We do something a little bit different this morning. We are going to play Jeopardy. Jeopardy with Jesus this morning, right? Honestly, not my best game, folks, let me tell you, because I'm not an um, expert on 18th century novelists or Canadian cities. Um, now, if the categories were NFL, 80s movie trivia, and, and Bible questions, I, I could rock that out. But if I ever watched, I maybe get one question right on the old Jeopardy show. But as I was reading through the text, and one of the things I do in preparation for this morning is always read through the text numerous times, over and over and over. And as I read through our text, it's like, this is like a trivia game. It's like question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. It's like spiritual jeopardy. But it's not that God just wants us to be smarter, right? We come to the word to hear from God. And, and here's what's interesting about our text. It, the, our text is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. These question answer session with Jesus and the Pharisees, it's not just in one gospel, it's in three of the four gospels. So if God puts something there three times, it's for our attention. And it's not just to make us smarter, right? There's, there's some principles behind these questions and answers that Jesus is going to give us that that's what he wants us to know so that he puts down three times, not so that we can answer a trivia question and feel good about ourselves, so that we can understand what is he saying so that we can do the things he is saying. So we are going to play Jeopardy with Jesus this morning, all right? Not to be smarter, but to understand what is he calling us to? What does he want us to do? All right, so we have three categories this morning. I don't have time for the full six categories. Three categories. I didn't add the sound effects because I wasn't sure about copyright laws and I don't want to be sued. So, but, and I made my own slides. I didn't copy from them so I can't be sued. There's a little bit of textual difference so they can't sue us. But anyway, three categories. Number one, death and taxes. Category number two, ridiculous questions. And category number three, S-Y-K-S, stuff you should know if you're over 40 years old, right? All right, so these are our three categories this morning. Remember, you have to answer in the form of a question, okay? It's the what is this? Uh, but remember where we've been. There's conflict arising with Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders during the last week of his life. And it's because he rode into Jerusalem and everyone's saying, save now, you're the king. And he doesn't refute them. And the Pharisees are like, tell them to be quiet. He's like, no, they're right. And he's healing people. And then he drives out all their profiteers in the temple. And he sets up his own Bible study. And then he teaches that these guys are done last week we saw. These religious leaders, you're out. And this new group is coming in. And he is in no uncertain terms claiming to be Messiah. And so they are trying to get rid of him, to discredit him in any way they can. And so they're gonna get in a back room and come up with a plan and say, let's get him to play a game. And we'll trick him, right? Let's play some games. And so they play spiritual jeopardy. So the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Let's get him to play a game. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, a, a first century reader would be like, huh, this is fishy. <laughs> this is already fishy because the Pharisees and the Herodians were not buddies. In fact, these are two groups that are exactly the opposite of each other. This is PETA and the NRA getting together. <laughs> okay, that's what this is. The Herodians were a political group. 
They were Jews, but they were a political group in support of Rome and in support of the Herods who were Gentile. Herod was an Edomite. He was the enemy of Israel, but they liked the political spectrum. They were glad that Herod was in charge and Rome was in charge. The Pharisees on their head hated Rome, hated Herod. But what brings these two together, these two enemies? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Their common hatred for Jesus. And so they come and they say, let's play a game. Teacher, we know that you are true. That's a lie. They don't believe that. And and we know you teach the way of God truthfully. That's a lie. They don't believe that either. And we know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. That is true. And we know that you are not swayed by appearances. That also is true. But you can just see that they're, they're playing a game here, right? They're trying to gonna catch him. They're trying to trick him with flattery and all these other things. And so we come to our first category this morning. Let's take death and taxes for 200, Alex. Here's your answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. What's the question? Anyone know? For $200? I'm not giving you $200 but you can tithe in the back when you leave. <laughs> Anybody know the, what's the answer to what question? Yes, I heard it. What do we do about taxes? What should we do about our taxes, right? They ask him, tell us what you think, Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the word lawful there is not, what's the legal rights? It's what does Moses say? What does Moses say about paying taxes to a conquering nation like Rome, Jesus? What, do you, what does he think? Now, the Herodians, they have an opinion. They're all for it. But the Pharisees despise it because every time they pay that tax, it's a reminder that they are slaves of Rome. And that, this is what is called the Roman poll tax. Every Jewish male was required to pay this tax once a year. And this tax would go right into Caesar's coffers and he would in turn pay armies to subjugate people. So basically they are paying for the occupation army that's there. And so every time a Pharisee had to pay this, they, it, they just made them fuming because it reminded them that Rome was in charge. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He's aware of their malice. It's a word that means evil intentions. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why do you put me to the test? Because he knows. He knows what they're doing. If he says, yes, pay it, then all the the patriots of Israel, the ones who are like, that hate Rome, they're gonna be like, well, we don't want this guy. He just loves Rome. And if he says, no, it's not lawful, then then they're gonna take him right to Pilate and say, this guy tells people not to pay you taxes. They're trying to catch him with an either or, right? And and Jesus could have done what the Pharisees did last week when he asked them a question. They're like, oh, we don't know. But Jesus is the Jeopardy champion. He is Ken Jennings, undefeated. And so he sees through it and he says, show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. The Roman poll tax was paid with this coin. This is actually an original from from the very time of Jesus' coin. You can buy it on eBay for like 850 bucks if you're so inclined. It's about the size of a dime. It's called a Roman Daenerys. It was the average labor pay for one day of work. And on on the front of it, you had a picture of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar to about 37 AD. And there was an inscription that said, God and high priest son of the, the divine Augustus. And on the back, it had a woman seated picturing the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that they were having to pay for. And the very coin itself was an affront to a Jew because you weren't supposed to put an image of anything that was based in the 10 commandments. And this image claimed that Caesar was God. 
So they despised this coin. Yet, he says, show me a coin. Why? Because Jesus doesn't have one in his wallet. Who does have one in his wallet? They have one in their wallet, which is why he says, you hypocrites. You have the very coin that you despise in the holy temple of God, right? They're hypocrites. But then he asks them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Whose picture is that? He says, well, that, that's Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. He says, okay, good. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. There's our answer. What is the question? Should we pay taxes? The answer, render to Caesar things that are Caesar. And, and the word render there, he changes the word. Earlier they say, is it lawful to give taxes? To didymai is a Greek word. Here, Jesus changes the word and says, apodidomai. It's a different Greek word. The idea is render back, give back what is already his. Caesar's image is on this coin. It's his, give it to him. He wants it, give it to him, right? See, what they wanted was an either or, and Jesus, it's not an either or, it is a both and. Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar, specifically on, on Luke, says this. What is taught here is not a separation of church and state, but the recognition of existing spheres of given relationship and responsibility. Both God and the state need to be properly honored. Jesus is not anti-government. God ordains government. He's the one who created government. Do governments go corrupt? Absolutely. Do they take too much taxes? Mm-hmm. Is God sovereign over them still? Absolutely they are. And here's Jesus's point, and it's brilliant. He says, whose image is that? Caesar, that means it's his. Whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Genesis 1, God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them male and female. You are made in the image of God, which means you are his. So he says, you give, he wants, his, he wants that thing that has his image on it, give it to him. Is it too much? Probably, but give it to him. You give God what has his image on him. That's you. And the principle behind the question that the reason why it's in three gospels and it's throughout the Bible is this, God wants you. Your adoration, your loyalty, your worship. Why? Because you are created in his image. In one practical application, and some of you are gonna be mad at me, but I don't really care because Jesus said it. One application of this, of this is, is this. Because God wants you, that means you should be the best citizen of wherever you live that you can be. That means if the government says, you need to pay this taxes, guess what Jesus would say? I don't care how high it is, pay it. Anyone get the fire bill? (laughs) Just in case my house burns down, I have to pay $500 a year. Are you kidding me, fire bill? You know what? And I'm thinking, this is absurd. I'm taking my chances. Just gonna get a bunch of fire extinguishers. <laughs> but Jesus would say, yeah, it's ridiculous and pay it. Because we are to be good citizens of our country. And I know some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but what if our government's corrupt? And the government, look what they do, all the corrupt things they do with our money. I can't, I can't give my money to the government so corrupt. Is it any more corrupt than a government where the, the head of it says he's God and is endorsing all sorts of immorality? And Jesus says, give it to him. Give it to them without complaint. And you worry about you. The point is this, you are God's, live for him. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works that we may walk in them. And here's what that means. 
if we're gonna be great citizens. If you're a student, that you show up at class tomorrow and you respect your teacher and you turn your assignments in on time and you do the best you can do. And if the best you can do is a B minus, then you better get you a B minus. You work hard, why? Because this, there's no difference in the sacred and the secular. We have this dichotomy that we have. And Jesus is trying to teach. No, there's no dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. This is worship. You showing up and doing a great job and being respectful to your teachers and not cheating and being honest, that is worship as much as singing a song. And when your boss is arrogant and is lazy and doesn't do a good job and you don't feel like working for him, no, you're not working for him. You're working for God. And so you show up tomorrow and you are the best employee at that place regardless of what's going on. Why? Because it's worship. When you get on Truman later and the speed limit says 55, that doesn't mean 73 because you're gonna get caught at the stop sign anyway, y'all. Do you not know this? It means obey the law. Be a great citizen. Be respectful of your neighbor. Cut your grass. Make your yard look nice. It doesn't have to look like Augusta National, but it shouldn't be the worst in the neighborhood for sure. Because you're being a good citizen. You're a worshiper, that you are living your life as a worshiper. Here's, here's key verse. This is, if you have not memorized this verse, this is your homework for this week. I'm gonna read this together, all of us, all 600 of us in this room. Let's read this together. This is the challenge for us. Ready? Read. Let's read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of the grace and mercy of God who drew you to himself, that's, that's Romans 1 through 11. You present what? You on the altar. Your life, your work, your hobbies, your spare time, your money, your affections to God as something that's set apart, that's holy. It's something that's acceptable. And he says, that's worship. Yes, singing's worship. Yeah, giving's worship. That's worship. Your life is worship because you are stamped with the image of God. And the point of the question and answer is not that you get the, oh yeah, pay taxes. The point is God wants you. God wants you. All right? All right, next category. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, they asked him a question. We're gonna take uh, ridiculous questions for 200, Alex. And here's the answer. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's the question? And this is a hard one, right? It's a ridiculous question. Let's see what they ask. The same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. That's a key statement. There's, this is one of those other religious groups. They're the theological liberals of the day. And they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's how you remember it, Okay. They're, they actually don't believe in anything. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe anything supernatural. They only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Everything else they don't believe. They only believe that. And this is why it's a ridiculous question that they ask. It says, if a man dies and has no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. This is what we call Leverite marriage. All right, in, in the Old Testament, if a man who was married had no children and he died, his brother's job was to marry his widow and, and have a child to raise up. And that child would not be the brother's child. It would be considered his dead brother's child so that his name would be perpetuated throughout 
uh, throughout Israel. Very weird concept. But that's what they did. And if you want an example of it, look at the book of Ruth. When Ruth and Boaz finally get married, who's their son? Obed. He's not Ruth and Boaz's son. He's Naomi's because she's the one who lost her son, right? And so that's the idea you're raising up. And this was the Sadducees' go-to text for denial of the resurrection. Because for them, they're like, the only immortality there is, is raising up your name so that when you're gone, the only way to live forever is to have your name live forever. That's what this passage must be about. And so they think this is a go-to passage for us. We're gonna get Jesus. We're gonna make him look silly. We're gonna discredit him. So they come up with this ridiculous scenario. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. And having no offspring left, his wife to his brother. And so too, the second one died. And then the third one died. All seven died. And no one's asking the question, she's a black widow. Why are we marrying this woman? Okay, is she, is she a murderer? Right, no one's asking that question. But anyway, he says, after all of them, the woman died. Here's the question, Jesus. In the resurrection, which one of the seven is she gonna be the wife of? In, in this resurrection, which we don't believe in, who is she gonna be married to in the kingdom? for they all were married to her. And Jesus is thinking, that is the dumbest question I've ever heard. But let me answer you. He says, you are wrong for two reasons. Number one, you don't know the Bible. Number two, you don't know the power of God. You deny the power of God and you do not know the Bible which you read. Here's, here's why you don't know the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels, which they don't believe in, by the way, which is another knock. There's no marriage in heaven. There's only one bride in heaven. Who's that? The bride of Christ, right? Because there's no more death and, and childbirth and life. And so no, there's no marriage in heaven, right? And there's no more exclusive relationships with one person, one man and one woman. You are intimately known and knowing everyone, including God himself. And you will be like the angels, not you will be an angel, Right? You do not die and then you become an angel and then you got to earn your wings and you got to come back and you know, earn your wings like Clarence. That's not how it works. You're like the angel in that you're immortal. You're like the angel in that you will not die. You're like the angel and that you are glorified. You're not an angel. You are like angels in their eternal state. He said, this is all going to be done because of the power of God. This is what God will do. So you are ignorant of that and you're ignorant of the scriptures. For have you not read? Haven't you read the five books that you actually do believe? He quotes from the Pentateuch. He quotes from Exodus chapter three, where Moses is kind of out with the sheep, just enjoying himself. And he sees a, a little bush on fire. He's like, that is weird. And he goes and sees that bush and God speaks to him from the bush and says, take your shoes off the ground in which you're standing is holy. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Now, if God was speaking accurately in Exodus 3, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So if he's speaking accurately and the, Pharisees, and the Sadducees are right, he should have said, oh, I was the God of Abraham and I was the God when he was living of Isaac and I was the God of Jacob. But he says, no, I am. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive, right? He is the God of the, of the not the dead, but the living and this is, by the way, a great argument for how even down to the tense of the word, God inspires the scriptures. The tenses are even inspired. But here's his point. If those guys are gone and there's no resurrection, then he should not say, I am the God. But he does say, I am. In fact, his very name, Yahweh, I am that I am. Who should I say, Moses says to him that send me? He says, tell him I am sent you. Why? Because he is the God of the living 
not the God of the dead. And the question to the answer, he is the God of the living, not the dead, is this, why should I believe in the resurrection? It's a ridiculous question. But why should I believe in the resurrection? Because he is the God of the living and not the dead. And ultimately, here's the principle behind that, is that God keeps his promises. He promised Abraham, he promised Isaac, he promised Jacob something, and even death could not stop that promise. Why? Because when God speaks, he fulfills what he says because the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God keeps his promises. And this is something we constantly need to be reminded of, CBC, right? We constantly, the ultimate promise is this. Jesus says, I am gonna go away and I'm gonna prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. That's a promise, that's the ultimate promise that he will come and return and we will be resurrected and live forever. But there's all sorts of just practical, helpful promises throughout his word to help you walk in a way, in a manner that is worthy of him to have hope when it's hopeless, right? To, to when you're struggling to say, no, God is good. When you're doubting the goodness of God because life is a wreck and things are, are just seem to be going wrong after wrong after wrong after wrong, that you can come to God's word and say, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And all who take refuge in him will be blessed. Sometimes don't you need to be reminded of that? Some of you struggling with anxiety and you're just worried. I mean, again, it's tax season, right? How many of you are like, I don't want to get on TurboTax. I do not want to log into TurboTax because I don't want to see how much I owe, Right? And, and, and you're like, you watch that number, and you're like, oh, and there's anxiety. What God promises to us is that his shoulders are broad, that we can cast all our anxiety on, on him. Why? Because he cares for you. I know some of you don't believe that right now. You're like, I don't know if he cares for me. He cares for you. It's a promise to claim, right? That, that you can pray with supplication and thanksgiving and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So be anxious for nothing. You need to claim that promise. When you're struggling with this sin area and you fail again and the enemy, the accuser of the brethren is like, see, you said you were different. You're not different. That you can be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That yeah, you did that. But if you have put your faith in Christ, that you have the righteousness of Christ and then when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And when you're walking in temptation, that you have an advocate with the Father, that Jesus had to become, the writer of Hebrews says, he had to become like us so that he could help us in temptation. And he says, here's my, here's my spirit, my helper. And he will teach you all things. He will lead you in all things. He will give you the power to resist the enemy and, flee, and make him flee. We gotta claim these promises. When you feel alone, unloved, uncared for, that you come back to the promise that says, no, 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 I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, never. That, that I have you in my hand and the father who is greater than I, no one is able to snatch you out of his hand, that you are secure and safe as you ever will be in the hands of a God who loves you, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You cannot even separate yourself from God's love. And so we need to be a people who claim and believe and keep coming back to the promises. Why? Because he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. God keeps his promises. End of story. Because it is impossible for him to lie. That's the point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Why should I believe in the resurrection? Because God keeps his promises. That's why you're here. 
If God doesn't, then what are we doing here? Should have slept in on a rainy Sunday. Watch the Dallas Cowboys lose tonight. Amen. Next one. Let's switch categories to stuff you should know for 200. Right? And the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is stuff you should know, right? What's the question on this one? You guys rock. What is the greatest commandment, right? It's exactly what they answered. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees have shut down. They're like, we're not gonna ask any more questions. But then there's one guy. There's always one guy. And this one happens to be a lawyer. And no lawyer jokes are loud, right? Because I have good friends that are lawyers, but the lawyer always has to speak. The Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And one of them, and a lawyer, and a lawyer back then is not the same as like Mike Hostelo today, right? A lawyer back then is an expert in the law, the, the Mosaic law. And so he comes to Jesus to test him. He's gonna ask a ridiculous question that he already knows the answer to. It could be in both categories. He already has an opinion on the question. In fact, we'll see from Mark's gospel that he, he already knows the answer, but he's testing Jesus. And he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? There were 613 laws. 365 of them were negative laws. 248 are positive laws. And one of the common debates was, what's the greatest? What's the summary of all of them? How do you just kind of like sum it down to one? And this guy already knows the answer. And Jesus answers him. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, not one now, on these two commandments depends or hangs is the literal word, hangs all the law and the prophets. Everything boiled down to these two things. Number one, the great Shema that they would recite every morning, every night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he quotes Leviticus, which says, and you should love your neighbor yourself. He said, the first one is the great commandment, love God. The second one is, is like it, but not the same. They're, they're, not, they're distinct, but they're not divided. Because you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. You can't say I love God and, and not love your neighbor. So they're, they're related. There's a vertical aspect, but there's a horizontal aspect as well, which is exactly what the apostle John tells us. If, I, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And if anyone says I love my brother, but I hate God, he's a liar. Because you can't love the one you see and not love the one you don't see. The idea is this. If you're doing the first one, you're gonna do the second one. They're not exclusive. They're together. And this guy gets it. He already knew this. In fact, Mark's gospel says his response was, you are right, teacher. To, he is one and to love him with her whole heart is greater than all the sacrifices and all the offerings you could ever give. And Jesus says, you get it, buddy. You're close. You're close. You're understanding the kingdom of what I'm saying. He gets it. But the point for us is, I think we need to be reminded, do we get it? Do I get it? That, and this is not just Old Testament stuff. Yeah, I know, that's the law. That's, no, 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 this is New Testament stuff. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, murder, covet, all those commandments are all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, look, forget negative, positive. The, the main two commands are both very positive, aren't they? Love God and then love one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? 
And, and that, that's a very Christianese thing to say. Love God, love others, right? What does it mean to love God? I mean, that's a question we gotta ask if that's the command. What does it mean to love God? I think it's helpful to think about what, what's something that's not God that you love, right? Not in an idolic way, but maybe so for some of us. But like, what do you love that's not God? Think about this. Some of you love a sports team. And you can, you can admit it, right? You wear Georgia stuff every Sunday or whatever team you want, yeah. So what do you do because you love the Bulldogs? You sing to the Bulldogs. You read about the Bulldogs. You think about the Bulldogs. You spend money on the Bulldogs. You mourn with the Bulldogs. You talk to people about the Bulldogs, right? You sacrifice two and sacrifice four. That's what you love. And I'll, that's, that's fine. Root them on. I have my team. Fly, Eagles, fly. Come on. I get it. But I think if we understand how that, that's how we love something, then the same is true for God. You love God, sing to God. You love God, think about God. Talk to God. Spend time with God. Sacrifice to him and for him. Speak of him, love him. This, it's, it's the same idea. We understand what love is in time. Jesus says this very clearly. If you love me, you'll obey me. Right? That love and obedience are related. And so if you say, if you love God, then stop looking at porn because that's what love for God looks like. If you love God, then stop holding a grudge against that person and forgive them. If you love God, then, then spend time with him and speak to him once in a while, right? That, that's the idea. So what does it look like? That, that's what it looks like. And then he says, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor. Because if you love God, you're going to, by nature, love your neighbor as yourself. And the assumption is we do love ourselves because we spend time on ourselves. We spend money on ourselves. We think well of ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We want people to forgive us. We want people to be generous. He says, just do what you would do for you to other people. You want people to be generous to you? Then, then be generous to them. You want them to give you the benefit of the doubt? Don't assume the worst. You don't want them to talk about you? Don't talk about them. You want them to help you when you need something? Then help them. The idea is just treat other people the way you treat you. And the key is, it's easy for us to do that to the people who are nice, which is why Peter says, it's easy for you to do it to people who are nice. How about for the people that are not nice? This is why Luke's gospel, when he answers this question, he actually answers it in a different chapter. He goes on a, on a, a long explanation of who's your neighbor? The Samaritan's your neighbor. The person that's nasty is your neighbor. Your boss that doesn't like you very much and treat you well, he says, bless them. How hard is that? He said, that's what love looks like. The person, that, that business that, that talked trash about you and gave you negative Google reviews and now you're losing money, he says, pray for them. That's what love looks like. The neighbor who's constantly keeping their yard badly and, and doing this and then they walk by and you don't talk. No, be kind to them. Maybe take them cookies at, at, at Christmas. Write an encouraging letter, whatever. He says, it's easy to do it to the nice people. Do it for your enemy. That's shows a love for God. That's being the church because you're made in his image. He stamped you with his image. So go. What's the point? It's, the point is love God, love others. That's what we do. That's how, and we show our love for God and how we love one another, right? That's a big one. That's, that's stuff we should know, right? That's the stuff we do know, but it's not always easy. 
So that's for 200. What about for 400? What's the next one? The Pharisees gathered together and Jesus asked them a question. No one else is speaking. They're like, okay, we, this is a bad idea. We should have chose Parcheesi or something. Jeopardy was not a good choice because we're all, he's showing them up. They wanted to show him up and he's showing them up. So now they don't want to pick a category that says, Jesus says, I'll take stuff you should know for 400. And that, my friends, is a daily double. I really wanted to use the sound effect for that one. Right? And you know how the daily double works, right? You can, wage, you can wager all your money. You can make it a true daily double. You can double or nothing. You can go all in, which is what this question is the, probably the most important question. This is the one you want to go all in on. Because here's the answer. He is God. He is God. What's the question? Let's look what Jesus asks. He says, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? He's asking the religious leaders. What do you, tell me about the Messiah. Whose son is he? They, this is an easy one for them. They're like, oh, this is first grade. He's the son of David. He's the rod of Jesse. He's the descendant of David, right? From you, David, one will come who will be ruler from all. Like, right? They know their Old Testament. They say, he is the son of David. He's like, you're right, good. Second part of the question. Then how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm 110, which is everyone agrees in that day is a messianic Psalm. This is a Psalm that predicts Messiah. So he says, David wrote this Psalm and he's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the scripture is inspired by the spirit. So the Holy Spirit moves on David and David says about Messiah, who is his son, that he is Lord. Now that is very unusual in a patriarchal society. The son calls the dad Lord. The dad doesn't call the son Lord. But he says, David, by the Holy Spirit, says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. It's a little confusing in the, in the English because we have one word for Lord. In the Hebrew, which is quoted from, there's multiple useful words for Lord. And so David literally says this in Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh. Now David's quoting Yahweh. David says, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies on my feet. He says, Jesus asked him, if David is calling his son, his descendant, Lord, how is he his son? And they're like, pass. Because it's illogical. How could David call one of his descendants hundreds of years later, Lord, if he doesn't even exist yet? Unless he does. And unless he is more than just a guy who comes from his line, unless Messiah is God. The question is this, who is Messiah really? And the answer is, he is God. Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit next to me on my throne up here. Who, who gets to do that? Only one. God, because Messiah is not just someone who is from the loins of David. He is God incarnate. He existed when David was alive. He existed in eternity past. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is both. And he, come, he, he puts them on the spot here and they say nothing. No one's able to answer my word. They don't answer the question because they have no answer. From that day on, no one dared ask him a question. All right, we're only playing Parcheesi from now on. No more trivia. Because they know that they can't stump him. But he, 
he brings him to a point, and this is what the point of the gospel writer has. You gotta come to a point where you say, who is this one? Who the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this one who heals the blind and the lame? Who is this one who calls people back from the grave? Who teaches with authority like this? Who is he? And what Matthew is trying to get you to see is he is God, he is king. Messiah is Lord. And it puts the reader, uh, the Pharisees, all the people at a point. You gotta make a choice. You can reject him, you can ignore him, but you can't fool him and you can't hide from him. You can fail to acknowledge him as king, but that doesn't change the fact that he is king. Because in the end, this is why this is a true daily double, y'all. This is why you gotta go all in on this answer. Because in the end, it's not really a game. It's not a trivia game. It's an eternal one. Like We will all live forever. The resurrection is real. Some to resurrection of life, some to resurrection of the dead. That, that is gonna be very clear when we get to Matthew 24. So the point is this, who are you gonna believe? What are you gonna do with this one who has all authority? Because he will keep his word. The only, the only right solution is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in the proper time. That's the only right response. Because you can reject him. And you can say, I won't bow the knee, but one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the one, y'all. He is the king, yet he humbled himself so much that he would die in your place. That's how much he loves you. That the king loves you so much that he would come to this earth, that he would live this life that you couldn't live, that he would die in your place for your sins. And he says, now come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will give you life, abundant life. I will go prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. That's what I offer. But you gotta bow to me because he's the king. He's the one who wants us because our, his image is on us. He's the one who keeps his promises. He's the one who says, just love me because I loved you. You love me because I love you and then love one another because I love everybody. And then he says, and just bow to me because I am king and I am Lord. That's, that's the only question that matters. Who do you say that he is? He is king. He is Lord. He's our Messiah. He is our God. I'm going to pray and we're going to uh, celebrate as, as the body, the Lord's table this morning. So I ask those who are uh, serving us to, to go ahead, get ready. And you can come on down as soon as you get ready because we have a lot of folks in the room. It's going to take a little time. If you are a guest of ours and you are a follower of Jesus, we, we invite you to celebrate with us. Uh, if you're not, and you're like, I don't, I don't understand this. There's no pressure. Just, just let the cup and the, and the bread pass because this is a reminder for those who have put their faith in Christ of what he has done for us, how he has given himself and he has died for us, for our sins. And so uh, the, the men and women are gonna uh, come down and they're gonna start handing these out. The team's just gonna sing a verse or two of a song and just use this time to, to search your heart if there's unrepentant sin, to deal with it, uh, to be thankful to worship, to love, to tell God, man, I haven't been loving you, but I wanna love you. Uh, and just have some time alone individually with God. And then I'll come back up in just a, a moment and, and lead us as we take this together. Let me pray. Father, take this time where we remember these, these symbols of your grace uh, to just to, to lavish ourselves in your love. Even if we've been ignoring you, you, you say, draw near to me, I will draw near to you. 
Maybe we had a great week. Maybe we had a bad week. But you say, hey, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in. I will dine with you and you with me. We'll have fellowship. And that's what you want. And so I pray as a church, we would pursue that, that we would love you, that we'd be great citizens of this city because our, we are stamped with your image. And what we do is worship. So wherever we need to be humble and repentant, Lord, let us do that. Whatever we need to be affirmed in your promises of your love, let us do that. Uh, and let us bow the knee to you because you are a gracious, good God to us. It's in Christ's name I pray.